How to Approach New Medical Research on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. And this week on the podcast, I am joined by Dan Gannon. Dan is a medical doctor who is retired from orthopedic surgery, and uh, Pam is also in the medical field. She's a registered nurse, uh, worked in the ICU for several years. They're also both biblical counselors, and I'm so delighted to have them. They're members at Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana. And so uh, I'm so delighted that you guys are here with me, particularly to talk about the subject of medical research. Medical research right now, I would argue, is really one of the things that is a huge hindrance for many people to even contemplate or think about ideas of biblical counseling. So many people see the field of medical research and the potentials of medical research as limiting what we think in the biblical counseling world. And so I couldn't think of a better topic for us to address than something like this to to really squelch our fears about what really is happening in the medical world and, and that it's something that we, we really can be excited about and we don't have to fear even in biblical counseling. We, we don't have to see a pitting of faith against science if it's true and real legitimate science. And so I'm, I'm delighted that you guys are here uh, joining me to talk about this subject. So let's just talk about the medical research in, in particular. Is medical research, Dan, is medical research something that is bad? Uh, thank you, Dale. Uh, medical research is critical. You know, I embrace it. You know, something that we need in this world. It, we need to make advances in the medications that can be used for uh, illnesses. We need to bring new therapies, new surgeries to relieve suffering. Also, we need it to weed out present errors. I mean, there are some errors in our uh, mainstream medical that we think it's true, but future research will say, aha, we should, this is not good. We should get rid of this. We should change it. So it's really critical that we have a research. But as in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, we need to examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. And that is uh, very true for medical research because uh, it, it's uh, some of it is not good, but and so we have to take it with a grain of salt. So we have to be discerning. It's kind of like in Matthew, uh, we are sheep amongst wolves mm-hmm. in this world, mm-hmm. and uh, we have to be wise as serpents and yet gentle as doves. Yeah. So as we see medical research coming out, it's it's interesting. Uh, some we have this tendency, especially in our culture, to think that anything that's published in a medical journal uh, has to be more than simple theory. Um, and we we get this tendency to think, well, theory equals fact in medical research. And we could, we have to be, as you're cautioning, we have to be very uh, sensitive and discerning in how we approach research, how we adopt things as being scientifically true, uh, especially when they might have a different view of anthropology than what the Bible presents. We have to be cautious. And this is not something that is unusual, particularly when we look at, uh, as you mentioned before, some things that we believe to be true medically 200 years ago 
um, are certainly things today that we would say, wow, we, we didn't see the, the sum total of, of that at that time. What are some examples of that, maybe from history, that were believed to be true, medically speaking, at one time or another? And then as we move forward in history, we look back and we say, man, we made some mistake in our understanding of research. Well, I guess one example is the use of thalidomide, which was a drug to treat uh, mourning sickness uh, of early pregnancy. Mm. And then thalidomide later on was found to cause tremendous birth defects in the babies. Mm. And so uh, that is something that is obviously, uh, through research, has found out to be that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, also in the estrogen therapy for women, uh, it was thought, you know, going through menopause, estrogen supplementation was a good thing, but now then they found out there's a lot of problems with the estrogen supplementation and side effects. In fact, the side effects probably outweigh the benefits. So a lot of that has been changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my own world of orthopedics, you know, there was trouble with metal on metal implants, artificial hips, and it was thought to be the greatest thing in Europe and in Australia. And so we adopted that in the United States. And then uh, only with time, we found out the troubles with metal on metal implants. They're mm-hmm. causing a very small particulate wear that the body did not like at all. So medicine makes advances, but sometimes we uh, make mistakes. Well, and, and I think that's an honest, open assessment of how we approach medical research. That's helpful to know. It's always helpful to keep in mind is that even we as people who are doing this type of research, we're flawed. We don't see all the variables. We don't understand the the, the totality of the implication and so on. So that's mm-hmm. just, that's a healthy caution. I don't say all that, nor do you, to, to demonize medicine. Praise the Lord for medical advancements. And I do see it as uh, common grace from the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to go through surgery without anesthesia, right? I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a good thing. Um, but we do see in the modern, especially in our, our capitalistic, hungry, greedy culture where we see medical research being utilized, I would even argue maybe weaponized in such a way, uh, where we see you know, marketing mm. taking oh, over yes. in medical research. So uh, what are some of those cautions, especially when we talk about biases and things like that uh, in medical research? Well, that's a really good point, Dale, is that marketing far outpaces science. Marketing outpaces research. And in our society, we are bombarded all the time with, uh, you know, the benefits of, say, for instance, medical marijuana or the benefits of CBD oils and alternative medications, even stem cell therapy, which has tremendous uses, but it's being tremendously marketed for financial gain by clinics popping up all over without research Mm -hmm. to back them up. Mm -hmm. And they are very winsome in their arguments. They have uh, speakers that are are very... uh, influential and uh, and they will say uh, they will get people to say I'm going to sign up for this treatment and it's 14 grand insurance doesn't cover it the FDA hasn't approved it but uh, it, it and it's basically snake oil mm-hmm. uh, not not I'm certainly not saying stem cell therapy is snake oil but a lot of these marketing things are uh, one product will cure a whole variety of ailments. Mm -hmm. And that's a common uh, error that's out there. Mm -hmm. Now, as we think about the marketing aspect, how do you think marketing plays into uh, jading or biasing some of the research that's out there? There was a article about transgender therapy and who decides to do it. And the article concluded that there was a significant social contagion Mm. for those choosing transgender therapy. Mm. In other words, uh, 
some girls were influencing their friends Mm -hmm. and I'm going to go through transgender treatment, transgender surgery, whatever. And then that would go go on and on. And that was discovered in this paper. Now the paper was to be published, but there was a great outroar by a certain community that said, we don't want this to be suggested to be a social contagion because we think that it is a biological problem. And so that paper did not get published because of the great uproar before it could even be uh, uh, submitted before the editor decided to print it or not. The mm-hmm. editor did not print it. That begins to remove the the strategy of the marketing department uh, when you think about it. So I, I think these are helpful. And again, no one's trying to demonize. We're just trying to see what's there, what people love, and what would push us to see some modern medical research through a certain certain lens that could be helpful. Now, it's always important when we think about medical research, we applaud those things which are good. Uh, I, I even think of uh, something like Hebrews 4, 5.14, where it tells us what it means to be mature is that we learn to discern the difference between good and evil. And I think when we approach medical research, we have to learn to be discerning. And in order to do so, uh, what are some warnings that we could give folks, uh, cautions, if you will, uh, about medical research as we as we see um, marketed on our television sometimes, or uh, we see certainly thrown out on social media. What, what are some cautions and warnings that we should think well, about? Yeah, I think that has to be considered in the framework of uh, analyzing what is the purpose of this hmm. research paper. And there's always a purpose for any research. It, there's a motivation. There's an agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that last uh, thing, the agenda, that sometimes there's a connotation that there's a negative agenda. Certainly some research purpose is truly to advance academia, mm. for truly for knowledge. But sometimes there's fame, desires for fame or desires for fortune. Mm-hmm. For example, fame, uh, one university might want uh, the head chairman, he might be a little bit competitive mm-hmm. to a chairman from a different university, especially if they just got into a verbal spat at a conference mm-hmm. and one disagreed with another. And then they go back to the university and say, I want somebody to do research to show uh, that my technique is correct mm-hmm. and I want to uh, become famous. And all, oftentimes they want to release something that's outrageous, something that's radical. Mm-hmm. That's what gets published. Uh, the negative uh, studies that show this was no better than that, that rarely gets published. Mm-hmm. So certainly uh, you have to, uh, the Christian has to look at what's the motivation, uh, who is publishing this and why. Mm-hmm. You also have to look for publication bias. Mm-hmm. So the editors can decide that this article is going to get published or not. And we see that with antidepressant medications, those articles that show that there is a positive result from Mm -hmm. a particular medication. And then also you have to look at, was this sponsored by Mm -hmm. a pharmaceutical company? So that's that's a good, uh, that's a dead giveaway. If this is sponsored by a certain uh, pharmaceutical company, there may be bias involved. Mm -hmm. But... So the positive studies get published at about a 97% rate. But the negative studies, i.e. the studies that show this drug did not help in depression or whatever, those only get published 3% of the time. Mm. So there's a publication bias. And then when you look at meta-analysis, M-E-T-A, meta-analysis is Mm. to kind of compile a lot of different uh, uh, papers together so that there's more statistical power. Sometimes meta-analysis are only for published papers. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they're already pre-selected. The ones that were published had the positive results. Mm-hmm. 
other meta-analysis, which would be more beneficial, would include both published and unpublished mm-hmm. papers. So even looking at a meta-analysis, is this uh, only published data or is this does also involved unpublished data? So you, those are some of the things that you have to look at as a Christian. Uh, is there a sponsorship by a particular pharmaceutical company? Uh, you also might look at, is it pr- prospective? In other words, mm-hmm. doing a study and looking forward, or is it retrospective, only looking at past experiences? Because the retrospective studies are typically uh, weaker. So there can be bias, there can be fraud, there can be just errors in the study design. This is difficult. You know, there are statisticians who specialize in this to try to design a good study, and that's beyond our abilities. Mm-hmm. But certainly, uh, we have to look for those errors. But typically, uh, there is an agenda, and we see this in articles now where they're talking about evolution or inhabitable planets, mm-hmm. uh, gender identity issues, mental disorders, things about medical marijuana, CBD. Certainly the ones that get published are the positive ones Uh that suggest, aha, this may be. Another thing for Christians is to look carefully at the wording that the uh, in the results section, because oftentimes there's little caveats that say the results of this study suggest that such and such might or may or this. They may not actually have definitive data, mm-hmm. but they imply something. Yep. And then, then another error is the next research article cites the first one. Mm-hmm. The first one said it may cause such and such, and then the second article says the, the research previously showed mm-hmm. conclusively. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, there's an error in that next generation. Of of research that goes on. Mm-hmm. Now, talk just for a second about uh, many of these studies have to go through and be approved, especially in our country in the United States, uh, through the FDA. What are some some maybe issues or points of caution uh, about the, the process in the FDA and some of the things that we've seen that, that might not be helpful? Yeah, the, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is certainly our friend, but it's far from perfect. But, for instance, in the supplement industry, mm-hmm. uh, if they fall under the category of this is a food supplement, then they do not need FDA approval mm-hmm. as long as they do not claim to treat a disease. Mm-hmm. They can make any claims they want. Say, for instance, uh, they can claim to improve memory or diminish memory loss, Mm -hmm. but they cannot claim to treat dementia or Alzheimer's, for for example. And the same thing goes for a lot of different things in the supplement industry industry as far as aging. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we can uh, reduce the effects of aging, but they can't treat a disease. So uh, the whole supplement industry does not have to go through the FDA process. Now, the pharmaceutical company does have to go through the FDA approval process because they are treating a disease. And uh, they have a product that they patent. And of course, that's the end goal Mm -hmm. is to have a patentable uh, product that they will sell Mm -hmm. and make money for their shareholders. Mm -hmm. You know, the pharmaceutical companies, you know, I love them, but I hate them. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, they they're but they're business is to make money mm-hmm. through medications. Now, talk, let me just stop you right there. Sure. And as a doctor, you certainly, in personal experience, you encountered this where um, someone was trying to promote a drug and they're doing their job. So they're, they're not, their desire is not to harm anybody or anything like that. They're coming to you as a representative trying to, to sell a drug. Um, 
uh, from a doctor's perspective, kind of give the normal public uh, perspective on how much that happens and how persuasive that can be and often how it might be disconnected from uh, what this drug was intended to do in maybe a curative or a palliative form for the, for the individual. Well, you know, in my practice, drug representatives would bring in lunch mm-hmm. for my uh, employees, and I appreciated that. Sure. Uh, they always had a sales pitch, mm-hmm. and we allowed that, and they had a sales pitch for our employees and for us. And they were doing their job. They were selling their product. Mm-hmm. They were careful. But I think that uh, I took it upon myself that I did not want to be unduly influenced by them. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I was. Sure. I mean, I remember the whole pitch with, uh, you know, the opioid problems coming on now with the sales of OxyContin. Mm-hmm. And I do remember, you know, them talking about, you know, they're, they can be addictive. And I says, of course, it's an opioid. Mm-hmm. And, and now, of course, the big issue is did this company that sold that product, mm-hmm. did they withhold that or not? But uh, I... You know, I certainly don't think that they were misleading to me. I don't think they were ever purposely misleading. Mm-hmm. However, the fact is recognition, like you see, uh, you know, Chevy versus Ford, when you see it, and you, then there's a bit of name recognition, and that's the whole uh, way that advertising comes about. So, yes, we did uh, have pharmaceutical reps come into our offices. Was I influenced them? I probably was. Sure. But I wish I was not. But mm-hmm. I always I like to think that I took what they said and then did my own research. Mm-hmm. But there's probably times when I said, "Oh yeah, there's you know here they brought me some samples and patients love free samples." Sure. And I probably you know and, mm-hmm. and here's a prescription by the yeah. way. Yeah. So yeah, and, and I think the heart behind it is you want to see patient outcome. Yeah. You want to see something good. Yeah. You want to see relief or or whatever. So that's that's not. Uh, in and of itself a negative thing. Maybe just briefly, we can talk about the STAR-D trial. Mm -hmm. That's a a question I think that comes up in many people's mind. Um, And so maybe some of our listeners might not be familiar with it. Just kind of talk about it as an introductory and then maybe some of the the points of caution as we we think about it. Yeah. The STAR-D trial is Sequenced Treatment Alternatives to Relieve Depression. So it's an acronym. And What's known is that uh, antidepressant drugs are oftentimes marketed uh, by a pharmaceutical company because they would like this product to be sold. And yes, they want people to be helped, but they also want it to be sold so they can make money. And oftentimes they are the ones that sponsor these trials. Mm -hmm. And that introduces possible bias. It's not a guarantee, but it's possible that the author would then be biased. And those pharmaceutical companies, they own that study. Mm. And so if the study showed that their product didn't work, they would not release it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so there was a selective publication release and bias. Mm-hmm. Now, the STAR-D trial was uh, designed to avoid that. So there's no pharmaceutical uh, industry involved. It was done by the NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health. Mm-hmm. And it was also very large. It was 4,000 patients. And it was looking at antidepressants and do they worked Mm. and they would do a sequence they would start with a particular uh, SSRI selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor and then they would switch if it didn't work they would add Mm. there was a lot of different levels and tiers to this but anyway it was so 
it was a magnificent trial in the respect that it didn't was not influenced by industry, mm-hmm. and it had it was very large, four thousand patients, and it was prospective. So they studied patients for a year. They even supplied the meds free, mm-hmm. so that they were trying to keep people in the study so that there would not be dropout. Because when people drop out of a study, uh, that usually means that they did not do well, mm-hmm. and and so there. But anyway, the Star D trial. It, it, it went on and, and it ended in 2006, and they never published the results, and the, the, and t- except it was piecemeal. The bottom line is that the antidepressant meds did not do well. Mm. In fact, they, did, they barely, in some cases, they did not even meet the placebo rate of improvement. And so that was a great embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Because they kind of wanted to show the opposite, so the Star D trial is kind of buried and very hard to get the uh, uh, results from it. Mm-hmm. And people are kind of saying, "How come this is not uh, in the limelight? How come it's because it's buried because it did not show uh, significant improvement?" So I think uh, the Christians have to be uh, take this, you know, into considerations that we are being pushed now mm-hmm. that antidepressants are. They work. You can, yeah, you can use the Bible, but if they don't work, then just go ahead and take the antidepressants because they work. Mm-hmm. And I think that we are being influenced by uh, uh, physicians who prescribe them. It's the most pragmatic way mm-hmm. to handle uh, somebody in their office that mm-hmm. has despair and so forth. You know, you can't spend an hour or two uh, treating them and talking about why they're in this despair. You can't go after the tack. You mm-hmm. know, what's the real source mm-hmm. of your problem? They ha- have to, you know, what's the easiest way? So, uh, far- Man, And I would add, it sounds unloving if you're withholding something that has been proposed for many years to be something that's helpful. So yeah. there's a pressure there as well. Absolutely, and and people that are they are referred to go see your doctor because you're depressed, and and uh, they they want to help mom, they want to help their sister, their daughter, you know, because nobody wants to see their loved one going through struggles with depression. So the Star D trial. Uh, really did not show mm-hmm. that it worked, and it was an embarrassment. Then the other thing that comes up beside in, in the realm of antidepressant drugs is the discontinuation syndrome mm-hmm. uh, or withdrawal syndromes. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, when people take antidepressants for a long time, it's hard to get off of them. Mm-hmm. There are real effects on our nervous system that make it difficult to stop them. And it doesn't matter if you wean for a week or two or three because the discontinuation syndrome can uh, can go on for months or even years. Mm-hmm. And the rate of that, it was kind of poo-pooed as mm-hmm. like, well, it only happens once in a while. Mm-hmm. But the more recent research uh, is saying that it's 30 to 60% of people who take antidepressants go through these withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. And it's not a recurrence of the depression. Mm-hmm. It's other uh, manifestations of, you know, of feeling uh, blasé or mm-hmm. feeling uh, agitated or having nausea or dizziness. Mm-hmm. There's a whole plethora of symptoms that are involved. And now here's what happens is people feel badly after they've been weaning off antidepressants. So the wrong conclusion is, aha, you need the depressant medication. So there's a, the prescription is refilled. Mm-hmm. And then they feel like, I need to be on this for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Whereas in fact, it really is not a need to be on it for a lifetime. You, they are suffering from withdrawal effects mm-hmm. from their antidepressant. And so that is an unfortunate thing that goes on uh, today. 
And that was denied for a long time. And it's interesting, if you are listening and you care to hear more about it, uh, the British Medical Journal right now is producing uh, a plethora of articles related to this very subject, trying to demonstrate uh, how deeply this withdrawal effect uh, has has been upon people who have been uh, more long-term on antidepressant medication. So that's a discussion being had uh, here, Journal of American Medical Association, and also with the BMJ uh, in Britain. And so, uh, listen, this has been a helpful conversation. This is a, an area of interest of mine to, to research and study. Uh, what I want to do in biblical counseling world, certainly we can't cover all the topics, and, and we can tell we're getting a little long today. But uh, this is a topic that I think we don't have to be afraid of, that we need to engage in, but we need to engage in, as you've cautioned us today, wisely. We have to approach these issues with our eyes wide open, paying attention to what's going on, not assuming that anything that comes to us through quote-unquote medical research, that it is definitive science, and then we feel like it's pitting uh, science and what is real or true against faith, Um, but that's the position we start to get ourselves in. So I I want us to think thoroughly through these issues, which we hope to do certainly as we continue on in the future. It's not something we have to be fearful of, and that's one of the things I want to communicate. And not everybody's going to be a medical doctor, Dan, like you, and who can who can sort through these issues. Uh, but I do want us as a, a biblical counseling organization uh, not to stick our head in the sand about it. I want us to, to deal with it, not to just accept everything that comes through uh, medical science. I want us to be wise and diligent, even through the lenses of the, the passages that you mentioned. So thank you so much for being here and for describing uh, in detail what can be helpful as points of caution as we think about good, helpful medical research, and then some medical research that we need to be cautious about. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. On the website this week, we are going to include a basic bibliography for you. If this is an area of interest, we have a lot of resources of uh, research that's being done even now, books that you can read and engage in, uh, that if this is an area of interest, I, I want to encourage you to, to read about. And uh, many of these might be uh, folks who are secularists, and by that I mean psychiatrists and psychologists who are writing in these areas uh, in ways that, as Jay Adams called them, may be co-belligerents. They're raising some questions that you and I would also have about um, some medical approaches to, uh, to life and issues of life. And, uh, and so I want to make that available to you on our website. So please go visit that at biblicalcounseling.com.